All right, good morning. Hope you've all had a good week and a good weekend so far. And I uh, appreciated the gospel meeting that we had uh, this past week. It was good to be able to do that again since it had been quite a while for, for us and for Donnie, it sounded like. Over the course of his meeting, um, <clears throat> And he didn't have a, a lesson explicitly on this, but he, I've just noted numerous times he made reference to uh, humility or the idea of being humble and the various points that he made and the different scriptures that he used. And so uh, that's something that kind of just stuck in my mind that, again, although there was not an explicit, we're going to have a lesson about humility, it was kind of interwoven um, in many of those uh, thoughts presented. I'll have to turn this off here in a minute. We'll see. Um, <laughs> it, it was interwoven within that. And I think the reason is, I mean, can you really talk about being a Christian? Can you really talk about um, being who we should be before God? Loving God as we should. Loving others as we should. On and on down the list. Can we really talk about that without talking about humility? Can we really do those things without being humble? I think we all know the answer to that. Of course, we have to. And of course, we can't do those things without humility. And so when I think of humility, one of the first verses that comes to mind is James chapter 4, verse 6. So if you would, go ahead and... I'm just going to turn this off. All right, hopefully everybody can still hear me well. Go ahead and turn over to James chapter 4, beginning, and, and we'll read verse 6. Actually, it's really the latter half of this verse that is uh, fairly well known. Uh, specifically there towards the end it says, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, my notes here on the side say this might be, or it likely is, a, a citation of Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34. And at least in my translation, uh, that, that in Proverbs it says, God scorns the scornful. And gives grace to the humble. And there's other passages in the New Testament that talk about this as well, but this is a very key concept. It says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We'll talk about the first half of that here for just a minute to emphasize why we need to talk about humility. That first half, God opposes the proud. Uh, Many translations will instead say God resists the proud. Now, when I, when I thought about that phrase, uh, particularly, I guess, the idea of resisting the proud and, and God doing that, I don't know why this came to mind, but I was thinking about magnets. You know, you take two magnets and you put them in the right direction, well, they just click together and, and they stick. But you, you've ever tried to flip them around the wrong way, try to stick them together. <laughs> you can't. It can't be done. You might can get it kind of, you know, sideways, kind of halfway, partially sticking together, but then you just barely tap it and they just fly apart. It can't be done. That's what I think about when I think about God resisting us because we're proud. We can't be close to God. Just like those two magnets facing the wrong direction can't come together, we can't come together with God. We can't be one with God as we should be why? Because he's opposing us, resisting us. I mean, just, just let that sink in for a minute. Imagine being in a state of mind and in a state of your life and behaving in such a way that God resists you. God opposes you. God, it, it's impossible for the two of you to be in sync, 
to be aligned, to be one. That's a very sad state to find oneself in. And so it's important then, if we don't want to be in that state, if we don't want to be in a state of God resisting and opposing us, we need to be on the other side. We need to be humble. Now that first thought, we'll, we'll pick that up much later on about resist God resisting and opposing us. But now, in order to avoid that, we're going to talk about, for the majority of this lesson, the other part. God gives grace to the humble. We don't want God to resist us. We want grace, don't we? That's what, that's what Christianity is all about. That's what we recognize God is extending to us is grace. We want that grace. We want that from God. But this passage tells us if we want that, we have to be humble. And so, as with many such things, let's just talk about what does it mean to be humble? How do we display humility? Well, right here in the same passage, actually, is one of the, the definitions. And that is, got to put God first. Verse 10 of this same chapter. Humble yourselves before God, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. See, first and foremost, we have to be humble before God. Of course, uh, this isn't spoiling anything. We all know we're going to talk about being humble with each other. But the thing is, we, we can be humble to each other all we want. There's a lot of humble people in the world that don't care about God one bit. Humble towards one another, at least. There's a lot of people that truly seek others' needs ahead of their own. There's a guy on my team at work. He is constantly volunteering. That's his hobby. That's his hobby, is volunteering. How many of us can say that? How many of us can say, my, my hobby is volunteering, the seeing what good I can do in a community. That's great. But what's lacking? God. Being humble before God. Now, I'm not going to, uh, just as a quick statement, I'm not going to be judgmental towards him. I, don't, I actually don't know. <laughs> I really don't know his beliefs on that front. But what I mean is, we can have somebody like that, and we run into people like that all the time, that are missing God, that don't acknowledge God in who he is. And so that's the most important thing first. Put God first. And Proverbs chapter 3, I think, gives a pretty good definition of what this means. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on, on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is what I believe a, a pretty concise description of what it means to put God first. Trust with all your heart, but don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways. In other words, there's not this little aspect, you know, this part of our lives over here, I can do what I want. And God's over here, and I'll follow him in these ways. No, in all of our ways. Whatever we're doing, however we're living, whatever role we're playing, whatever role we're filling, perhaps I should say, God's first. If we're husband, or wife, father, mother, child, employee, friend, any of those things, we acknowledge him in all of those ways. There's no, there's, as we often say, there's no all or, or allest. It's all of his ways. In all of our ways, we acknowledge him. 
That's what it means, is that no matter what we do, God is first and foremost in our minds. He is accounted for in any decision we make, in any attitude we have, any thought that we have. There's a passage in the New Testament that talks about taking captive every thought. Every thought we have has to be in line with what God wants of us. Now, I think it's important to talk about some examples, and we'll look at a lot of examples towards the end. Um, but one, one example that comes to mind, just a very practical application of, of what it means to put God first, I actually thought about Abraham. thought about Abraham over in Genesis chapter 12. We're not going to read that passage if you're taking notes. Whoops. Uh, if you're taking notes, go ahead and, and write that one down. I think this one will be very familiar to us, though. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 9, is where Abraham was called. And it was quite literally, Abraham... Pack up, let's go. <laughs> Take everything. We're going to leave. Now, here's the deal. Abraham was not a young man. I mean, we, we might talk about how people lived older back then and so forth. Even by standards uh, back then, he was old. And he didn't have any children. And he was probably, hey, I'm settling in now. We're going to um, just kind of coast and enjoy life. That's when God called him, was right towards the end of saying, all right, let's go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a land that you're going to inherit. And Abraham did it. I think sometimes we, we take for granted just how much that took. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but maybe in, in my mind I picture, oh, we're just like living in tents in the wilderness anyways. Probably not. Whatever they were doing, they were pretty well established as a family. And what God told him to do is pack up and leave. You're probably not going to see your father again. You're probably not going to see your friends here again. You're not going to see your siblings again. Just pack up and go. That is putting God first. Of saying, it doesn't matter what all I've done for myself. It doesn't, the, the life I've built for me, the life I've built for my family, all this wealth, all these possessions, all these relationships, all of them are secondary to God saying, Abraham, get up and go. What if God came to you and said the same thing? Look, I see what you've done for your life. I see you're, you're close to retirement or you've got this good job or you've got this new house. You're really happy. You've got all these vacations planned. You've got all these friends. Things are going well. But I want you to get up and go somewhere you've never seen before. And just trust me. <laughs> Abraham did it. All of his ways were dedicated to God. And so that's the first thing is putting God first. Another uh, important part of being humble is putting others before ourselves. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. I would, I would pause here for a minute. We'll, we'll kind of... In talking about this passage and then in talking about James 4, I've really only picked a couple verses in those to look at, but I would encourage you to go back and look at them in more detail later because I've only picked a couple verses that really talk about humility, but the reality is the whole passage talks about humility in some form, but for sake of time, we only have a couple verses. So Philippians chapter 2 is a very critical passage about humility, but we're going to be most concerned with chapter uh, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of interests of others. As with the other passage that I mentioned, I think this is a very straightforward and concise explanation of what does it mean to put others before ourselves. You count others more significant than yourself, and you don't look to your own interests, you look to the interest of others. Easier said than done. I mean, we read this, oh, yeah, that's great, yeah, we're Christians, we're going to put others first, and we're less important than they are, but then reality comes, and we find sometimes that's not easy to do. Sometimes that's difficult. But Paul very simply says it here, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Not, not as significant, not, you know, factor them in just as much as you. Count them as more significant. In other words, if between the two of us, one person's going to get their way, or one person's going to get the, something better, it's the other person. And we'll revisit that later, but that's kind of what it boils down to. All things being equal, you want this, I want this, well, it, it goes to you because you're more significant than I am. That's what it means to be humble uh, to, and, and to put others before ourselves. Another passage on this, and this one we will, we, we will read quite a bit of, uh, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I think this, I mentioned um, Philippians chapter 2. I mentioned James chapter 4. In Romans chapter 12, all three of these, if you just read it from start to finish, you'll find there's a lot said there about humility. Either just literally the word humility, or when you just think about the things being described, you realize this is what it means to be humble. Now, in my Bible, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 21, there's a, there's a little header over it, and I've used it up here. It says, Marks of the True Christian. Now, of course, that's just inserted by man, by editors, translators, and so forth that want to help break things down and categorize. Sometimes that's not very helpful. <laughs> this one, though, that really stood out to me because what we're about to read, I would completely agree. They are marks of a true Christian. They should be key identifiers of whether or not we're living our lives as we should. It's the things we're about to read here in Romans chapter 12. Beginning in verse 9, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. And what does that mean? It says, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, or others before ourselves. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely or the humble. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so much as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Now, a few minutes ago I said, easier said than done sometimes, to put others before yourself. Well, evidently Paul knew that. <laughs> Paul knew sometimes that's not easy to do. Sometimes it's hard. And I think that's why he spent so much time in some of these passages talking about how to behave when it's difficult to put others first. When he says, bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. On and on and on. That's a mark of a true Christian. Is not, not just my friend over here. Can I put them first? My, my, my person who I'm, I'm really wanting to be friends with over here, or this person over here that's done me no wrong, and I don't have any cause for being upset with them, I'm going to do good for them, as Jesus says, even the tax collectors do that. But what Paul says is, even your enemy, even the person who does you harm, even someone who doesn't treat you right, he says, don't be overcome by that. Instead, overcome evil with good. That's humility. It's when we're not just willing to put people that's easy to put before ourselves, before ourselves, but rather take people that's hard to do that with and do it anyway. Because that's what God did for us. As an example, I think Abraham's another one that comes, Abraham comes to mind again for this. Over in Genesis chapter 13, verse 1 through 11. If you're making notes or if you want to turn over and read for reference, you can. Otherwise, I'll tell you what happens here. Um, when Abraham left, he took his nephew Lot with him. Eventually, they had lots of shepherds on either side, and they kind of had some conflicts. There wasn't enough room for all their flocks, and so they began to fight. Now, Abraham, and, and let's emphasize this, Abraham is the patriarch. Abraham, like, whatever Abraham said, went. That's, that's how that society worked. He was the head of the entire family. He could have just said, Lot, stop this. You don't like this? Go, go find your own place. <laughs> go find your own land. Get, get out of here. Abraham would have been within his right to do that. But instead, Abraham says, look, there's the whole land before us. Pick what you want. Whatever you don't take, I'll take. And we know what happened. Lot picked the more appealing one, the one that looked better. And Abraham didn't dispute him or argue, oh, no, 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 that's actually what I was hoping for. Uh, uh, you know, go over here instead. Abraham, he true to his word. Okay, you take that, I'll take this. We'll part ways, we'll go on. That's putting others before yourself. I mean, like I said, he could have gotten irritated. I mean, Lot's really only there in, in some respects by his grace as well. And he could have just said, deal with it. But instead he said, you know what? We're going to fix this situation. You, you take what seems best to you and I'll take the leftovers. That's what it means to put others before ourselves. And kind of a side note, as it turned out, uh, Abraham benefited from that. In, in other words, we know what happened with Lot. Lot got wrapped up into some pretty terrible situations, um, and Abraham didn't. <laughs> in fact, Abraham was there to help him. So even Abraham, in extending and uh, showing humility to Lot, even he benefited from that. And the same is true for us. If we'll just look after others, we'll be taken care of. God will see to it that things work out. Now finally about being humble, <clears throat> this one probably goes without saying, but to be humble, you have to avoid pride. You can't be prideful. Now there's three verses here, uh, and we've actually just read them, but I wanted to call out, 
you can't really talk about humility without also talking about not being prideful. So we read Proverbs chapter 3. Did you notice it also said, be not wise in your own eyes? Proverbs, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12, when we were reading that in verse 16, says never, basically the same thing, never be wise in your own sight. And we didn't read this one, but another one is Proverbs 16, uh, verse 18, where it talks about how pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. You see, we, we can't just, I'll put God first, I'll put man first, but I've got the best ideas. I know how things really should run. And if I weren't so busy putting the other needs first, then I could just fix all these situations because I'm smarter. We can't, it has to be even in our thoughts. We can't be wise in our own eyes or in our own sight. And we can't true, and we, we can't like make an outward show of doing good for others and following God, but internally we're prideful and thinking, again, if only I could just be king for a day, essentially, then everything will be fine because I have the right ideas. We have to dismiss that thought entirely. It has to not even be in our minds that we're the ones that are wise, we're the ones that know what's going on, because pride comes before a fall. Now, I think all of this is a pretty, you know, decent, I mean, I'm not going to say thorough, but I think all of these things probably come to mind for us when we think about humility. Of course, you know, be humble before God. Put others before self. Yeah, if you're humble, by definition, you're not proud, so don't be prideful. But I think it's also important to talk about some misconceptions about humility. And it's, it's really based upon those last few verses I just looked at. Sometimes I think we can, we can steer so far into not being wise in our own eyes, trying to avoid pride, trying to truly be humble, that we, we kind of get our wires mixed up sometimes. And don't get me wrong, I guess it's better to err on that side. It's, it's better to err in being too humble <laughs> than to err in being too arrogant. Um, but I think sometimes in seeking to be humble, we sometimes shy away or back off from things that we should be doing. Here's what I mean by that. For example, uh, I think sometimes out of humility, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I, I, don't, I can't entirely explain this one, but I, I can only guess that maybe it's sometimes in, in trying to be humble, sometimes we act a little bit timid about our own salvation. Now, what do I mean by that? We'll, we'll, we'll preach the gospel. We'll talk about here's what you got to do to be saved. You, you can't be sinning. You can't do this. You can't do that. You need to follow God. But when asked the point blank question, if you died right now, would you go to heaven? Well, I hope so. Do you truly believe you're going to heaven at the end of, of all this? Well, if, if I, if, there, there's that word in there, if, if I've done this and if I've done that and if I've done this, then, then yeah, I hope so. We kind of shy away. I think aside from humility, maybe maybe we fear sounding like, you know, once saved, always saved. Like, oh yeah, I know I'm going to be saved. I know I'm going to heaven because I was baptized. And we feel the need to insert all these little, like, conditions and caveats and if I've done this and if I've done that. Let me say this, though. Paul didn't have that problem. <laughs> Paul was confident in his salvation. Second Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy 4 verse 6 through 8. This is, he knows he's near the end of his life. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, let me ask, is he humble? Is Paul humble? Of course. Is he confident in his salvation? Yeah. I don't think God miraculously revealed to Paul, hey, Paul, when you die, everything's going to be okay. You know how I know that? Because he's told all of us that. He doesn't need to tell Paul that individually or uniquely. God has told all of us that. And that's why Paul says, you know, he doesn't say, I know this because God revealed it to me. He says he's going to word it to me on that day. And not only me, but all who have loved his appearing. Paul was not shy about it. Paul was confident. I'm receiving the crown of righteousness. When I die, I'm going to be in heaven. Now here's the deal. If we can't confidently say that, how in the world can we convince anybody else to become a Christian? How can we convince somebody, you know, like Abraham? Hey, Abraham, pack up, leave all your things, go to something I'm going to show you, and you might get something. <laughs> you, you, you might see something. Abraham will say, oh, I'm pretty good right here. I'm going to stay. Now, were there conditions? Of course. Were there things Abraham had to do? Of course. I was talking, uh, when I've been teaching on Joshua and now Judges, were there conditions for them receiving the promise? Of course. But that's not how God talked. That's not how Joshua talked. It's like, it's ours. We're going to get it. We're going to go. We're going to take it. The same with us. We can't convince somebody to give up everything and follow God if we ourselves can't speak confidently to what we're going to what we're going to receive at the end. Now, I know that's not easy <laughs> because in our minds there, there are and, and there are there are still conditions. You know, we can't just oh, I'm just going to live my life however I want to, and then I'm going to still go to heaven. We know better than that. But I, I fear that our fear <laughs> of sounding um, too quote unquote denominational or or too cocky or whatever that we we shy away from this let's not do that let's be confident we're doing what we're doing and we have confidence that at the end of this life we're going to be in heaven with god and if we can't get comfortable saying that again how are we ever going to convince somebody else um, to become, to give up everything and to follow god let's have confidence not just in the idea of salvation, not just in the general concept of us all receiving, but let's have confidence in our individual salvation. I don't, I don't mean like some kind of personal revelation. You know what I mean? In the fact that I, Kyle, am going to be saved. In the fact that Tim is going to be saved. All Every individual person here have confidence in your salvation. And then that may help give us boldness, still in humility, but boldness to go and talk to others. Because that's the other side of the equation. How can we convince somebody else to give up everything uh, if we ourselves don't feel confident? Well, how can we feel motivated to talk to someone else about salvation if we can't confidently speak about our own? We're spending all our time working on me, working on me, trying to figure, oh, I, I need to make sure I'm doing what I need to do to get there. Where's room for others? Where's room for helping others find salvation if we're constantly doubting and insecure in our salvation? Be confident in it. Another misconception about humility is sometimes we feel that being passive uh, is, is being humble. Specifically what I say is we sometimes fear that acting boldly or taking quick action is the opposite of humility. Turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 19. 
through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and, wicked, and, and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, or kind of a synonym to a degree, the humility, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, is what James is saying true? Absolutely. We should be quick to hear and slow to speak. We should not be, you know, anger should not, not be a definitive characteristic of us. If you're described as an angry person, that, uh, work on that. <laughs> uh, don't, don't, don't find yourself in that position. But I think sometimes we put them in absolute contrast. You know, if you, if you respond quickly, if you quickly speak out, if you get angry over this or angry over that, you're not, you're not humble because James says it right there. Again, that should not be a definitive characteristic. They just speak fast. They don't listen. And, and they, they display anger. But I would still say there is a time to act. And there is a time for anger. Let's look at an example of this. Jesus, he was quick to act. He was. He was quick to act, specifically with the scribes and the Pharisees, and sometimes even in anger. Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at a more detailed example next, but... Mark chapter 3, I think, is, is kind of an important setup for this. Mark chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. This is, you know, the, the Pharisees, as always, were trying to catch him in a trap, trying to catch him in his words, make him to be the hypocrite rather than them. And uh, let's just start in verse 2. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now notice this. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. He looked about in anger. But notice, it wasn't some self-righteous indignation of like, how dare they try and catch me in a trap? How dare they do this to me? The root of it was what? He said he was grieved at their hardness of heart. But he still looked out in anger, knowing that rather than trying to do good, they were trying to do harm. No, rather than trying to do good, they're trying to catch him in a trap. And Jesus was angered by that. Now, the more detailed one, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 15. Before reading this one, I want us to think about a couple things, similar to what I said earlier about Paul. Was Jesus humble? <laughs> of course. Jesus was humble. Jesus was a, the, the most humble. But again, sometimes we let that idea of humility get in the way of like, oh, we can't, we can't speak boldly, we can't quickly condemn this or quickly condemn that, we can't decisively take action and do the right thing, and oh no, we can't show anger or any of that. I want us to read this example and notice just how heavy Jesus pushes back on these people. Matthew 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now pause for a minute. That's all they said. Why do your disciples do this? Why, why do they break the traditions of the elders? They, they didn't wash their hands. What's, what's, what's going on here? Now, what passage could Jesus have turned to and said, hey, this is a sinful question? 
know. I mean, honestly, I, I think it was in some in some context. Put it this way: in some context, this could have been a valid question. Hey, I, I noticed they don't do this. What's uh, what's going on? Well, this has been a tradition. Surely it's for a reason. They're not doing it. Why, why not? I think if we'd have been in our, this situation, sometimes we might have been inclined to go. Oh, I think I know what they're getting at here. But, uh, you know, the question they asked is fine, so uh, I'll just answer it and, and we'll kind of move on. Because we don't really know what they were getting at here. Notice how Jesus responds. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what would you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, again, pausing, if we were observing, like, whoa, where is this coming from? Jesus is bringing in something entirely different. Jesus is bringing in another topic entirely. But it was relevant. Let's read on. It says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrine the commandments of men. And he called to the people to and he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father is not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. I would have loved to see the disciples' reaction here. Right? They, they think they're trying to save Jesus. Like, hey, Jesus, you, you offended them. You upset them. And then he says something in some ways even more offensive. He's like, well, they're blind guides. Just let them, let them do what they're going to do. Everyone's going to fall in the ditch that follows them. Now, a few things here. One, think back to the beginning. It was a question. Hey, why do your disciples break this tradition? On the surface, you know, Jesus could have just gone, eh, I don't know why they're asking this, and, you know, we'll, we'll answer it and move on. I think I know what they're getting at, but whatever. I think that's what many of us would have done. Instead, Jesus saw straight through it. And I don't think it's, you know, we, we talk a lot about Jesus knowing hearts and minds. I don't necessarily know that that's a miraculous thing. I think, you know, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. Well, sometimes their fruits made it abundantly clear the type of people that they were. And so when he was asked this question, he knew these people don't ask honest questions. These people aren't legitimately concerned, wanting to know, hey, uh, we're concerned about them not washing their hands. They're just trying to catch them in a trap again. And Jesus came down firmly, directly, and harshly, saying, no, <laughs> we're not having this conversation, and clearly you guys don't care about traditions either, because, or, or don't care about God either, because you violate God's commands with your tradition, and when confronted, hey, Jesus, I think you offended them, he said, they're blind guides. Now, here's the key. The key is that Jesus was demonstrating to his disciples that the Pharisees were not to be followed or imitated. If it had been anybody else, Jesus might have responded in a different way, right? But he knew, I'm dealing with people that others look up to. I'm dealing with people that others look to as leaders. 
Did Jesus treat every sinner this way? Absolutely not. The woman at the well, she was in sin. He didn't, he didn't even really address the sin. He talked about other things. Same goes with many, many others. In this case, though, Jesus knew their leaders, people were watching. And this is a critical moment, and it's time to act. We have to demonstrate the same when we're in the presence of sin. And as I said, like with Jesus, it doesn't mean anybody sins. We're just going to, boom, just let them have it. Anybody ask a question that's, that's out of ignorance, we're just going to let them have it. No. But when it comes to something like this, hypocrisy, deceit, sinfulness, we can't be shy. We have to, like Jesus, be bold and quickly address it. Because what would have happened here if Jesus had just you know, backed off and moved on? Well, then, oh, oh, hey, look at the Pharisees. They, they got him. He, they, he, he, they know what they're talking about. What, what, Jesus couldn't answer that question? That, that, would have been, that would have been wrong. Jesus did the right thing. So we can be humble and still directly and confidently and quickly address them. Now, we're going to have to hurry up. <laughs> Another one is um, acting in secret. I do want to read this one in Matthew chapter 6. This is the final misconception, then we'll get to some final examples here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 3 through 6. Just to kind of set this up a little bit. When it comes to doing good, when it comes to, to good deeds, or as I say, right actions, sometimes we're a little shy about that. We think, well, well others don't need to know that. And others, we, we kind of need to do it behind the scenes where others don't know about it. And some of it is legitimate, because look at what we're about to read here. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 3 through 6. When you give to the needy, do not let your hand... Um, I'm sorry, I got missed my place here. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, let's be clear. Jesus said this. <laughs> when you do good deeds, don't do them to be seen of man. When you pray, don't pray in front of others. Pray in your closet. Your Father knows, your Father hears, and your Father will reward in secret. So I want to be very clear on that. Jesus did say that. We don't go out doing good deeds. Hey, look. But notice the, the specific conditions here. It's, the, it's talking about the hypocrites that do it to be seen by others, to be praised by others, that pray to be seen by others, to be thought well of by others. He doesn't mean never pray in front of people. He doesn't mean never do a good deed if somebody else is going to see it, right? He's saying don't do it to be seen by others. Now, we have to take this concept and put it alongside another one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. We won't read this. We're well familiar, I hope. We're called to be a light of the world. He talks about a light. You know, you don't put a basket over it so that, that people can't see it, but you let it shine. It's on the hill. We're the salt of the earth. Now, here's the deal. How can we be described as a light if nobody is supposed to see how can we be described as the salt of the earth if no one ever actually sees it or experiences it? We have to balance it. We have to, the things that we're doing, 
And we can live in humility and others still see this happening, still see us behaving as we should. Even Paul, he stressed the importance of being honorable before others and not just God. A couple things here in Romans chapter 12. We actually read this earlier, but notice something he said there in verse 17. Romans 12:17 he says repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You know, he doesn't say be secretive about being honorable. Be honorable in the sight of all. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 20 through 21 is a similar concept where he says we don't do what's honorable just before God but we do honor do what is honorable before all. Now again the motivation matters. We have talked about, you know, teaching others about the gospel, teaching others about salvation. And if we don't have confidence in that, how are others going to believe it? Well, if people don't know what it looks like to be a Christian, why, is anyone, why would anyone ever be a Christian? If a Christian just looks like any old person and acts like any old person and, and you know, doesn't do the right thing in front of other people, that doesn't mean they do the wrong thing in front of other people, right? But if they don't make a point to do the right thing in front of people, what's the point? Why become a Christian? We have to balance it. But we can be humble and still make a point to do the right thing, to be an example to others. Not because we want them to look at us, but because we want them to look to God. We have to do that. As it says, we are the light of the world. And if we're not publicly behaving in the right way and giving glory to God, of course not to us, but to God, Nobody's going to see the light of the world. Now finally, we're going to talk about, you know, all the way back at the beginning, it says God gives grace to the humble. I think we've talked a lot about what it means to be humble. How is it that we receive grace through being humble? Well, the first one is receiving salvation. If we behave in humility, if we humble ourselves, God will grant us salvation. Cornelius is the perfect example of this. We've talked about him in the Acts class recently, in Acts chapter 10, verse 1 through 8. What did he do? What was he described as? A devout man. He prayed continually. He gave alms to the poor. You know, he cared about other people more than himself. He was seeking to do the right thing, and he was humble because he put others before himself. And he was wanting to put God before himself, but he's still trying to figure out, how do I do that? He was praying continually, looking for the answer. And guess what? Salvation found him. God saw, sent an angel, to literally an angel, to answer his prayers, and he received salvation. That's one way that we uh, receive grace and humility. If we're humble, God will grant us salvation. God will also grant us forgiveness. It's another way that we receive grace through being humble is receiving forgiveness. Now, I do want to read a little bit of this one. Turn over to 2 Samuel. It's kind of for the setup here. Most of us know this, but King David, the man after God's own heart, own heart, the one chosen to be the king of Israel, you could probably say that he was the king at the time where Israel was at their, their peak, at their height. You might could argue Solomon, but regardless, it started with David. Even he messed up. He lusted after a woman who was married, committed adultery with her, and rather than just doing the right thing, he found out, oh, she's pregnant, so still rather than doing the right thing, I'll just have his hus her husband killed. That way it's a cover-up, and she'll come be my wife now. <laughs> That's horrible. 
I mean, you know, not, not all sins, all, sin is sin, right? It doesn't really matter. Sin is sin, but the vast, vast, vast majority of people will go through life never doing something this extreme. And God, through Nathan, confronted him on it. So Nathan comes and tells him a, an illustration where somebody else, you know, took a lamb that belonged to another man and killed it. And David was angry. In verse 5, says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall die, or deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. David could have responded with anger. What do you mean I'm the man? What do you mean I've done something like this? But for all his flaws and for this huge mistake that he had made, he was humble. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Nathan, and God through Nathan, acknowledged his humility. It says, the Lord has put away your sin. Why? Because David was humble enough to say, I've sinned. Now let's talk about this for a minute. This can be difficult. When we're in David's position, we've done wrong, and somebody else confronts us on it, it can be hard to do what David did and say, I've sinned. And like David, when he was told that story, it's easy to look over there and say, oh, that person's sinful. They deserve to die. But it can be hard to look at ourselves and say, I deserve to die. I deserve punishment. But David did. Why? Because he humbled himself. Here's the thing. If David can be forgiven for murder in adultery, in, in such an extreme situation, God can forgive us too. God can forgive us of whatever we've done if we're humble. If we humble ourselves before God and just say what David said, I have sinned. Doesn't mean there won't be consequences. There were consequences for him. But because he was humble, God did say, you won't die. I put away your sin. You're not going to die. But here's what's going to happen. An even more extreme example, though, and again, for sake of time, um, we won't necessarily read through all this, but we did have a lesson this past week about Ahab um, and the wickedness and the idea of him being stirred up and the idea of him selling himself to do evil. Ahab was the standard of wickedness. Of all the kings, it was, basically everyone after him, it's like either they were more wicked or less wicked than Ahab. Ahab like set the bar of wickedness for Israel and was described as, as Donnie described, and as we see in 1 Kings, 19, uh, 1 Kings 21, he sold himself to do evil. But once he realized that, he did humble himself. He did put on sackcloth, he did put on ashes and humbled himself. And actually, I will quickly read one of the verses here because I think it is important. Uh, he fasted and lay in sackcloth and lay about dejectedly. Verse 28, The word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself, humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster. Like David, were there consequences? Yes. 
But because Ahab recognized his sin and humbled himself, God extended grace by saying, even though Ahab deserved it, he's not going to be punished in his days. Ahab, as I said, standard of wickedness, but even he received grace after he humbled himself. And finally, the, the ultimate way that we'll receive grace through humility and in humility is in receiving heaven. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23 through 30 describes this. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. What more blatant way to be humble than to put yourself last. Put yourself last in line. Below God, below our family and friends, below our enemies, we're last. If we do that, if we truly humble ourselves, and, and it's not some kind of like self-motivated humility, I'm going to be humility, I'm going to be humble because it's going to pay off in the end. No, we be humble because we actually believe that's where we belong. That's the other key. We actually believe. That's where I sit in the grand scheme of things. Beneath all of those people, there's me. If we actually believe that and we actually live in that way, Jesus says on that day, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so God gives grace to the humble. Let's read that verse at the very end before we conclude. Back in James chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Submit yourselves therefore... I'm sorry, um, I was reading verse 7. Verse 6, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Two things before we close. One, I said we get back to that first half. God resists the proud or opposes the proud. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes if we're struggling, if we're having a hard time, if it seems like no matter what we do, we can't quote-unquote get ahead, things are just constantly difficult, in those times we're often inclined to say, oh, it's coincidence, or it's Satan, or it's those other people, my enemies, whoever it is that's giving us a hard time or whatever. That it's all these external things. That's why, that's, that's why life's difficult. Well, you know what? According to this passage, it might be God. If we're not humble, it might well be God who stands in our way. What a terrible thought. To think that maybe we're miserable, maybe things are hard, maybe we can't, nothing works out, not because of anyone else, but because of us. Because our arrogance and our pride has led to God opposing us. Back to the example of the magnets, that's never going to work out. <laughs> if God's opposing you, it's never going to work out. But on the flip side, if we'll get rid of that and just humble ourselves, God will give us grace. And so I want to ask you at this time, is there anything in your life that you, where you need to humble yourself. If you're not a Christian, you need to humble yourself before God and put Him first. Become a Christian. If you're a Christian who has sinned, who's gone astray, you can come back. Even David, after that sin, Ahab, after that sin, we can come back. But the first thing is humbling ourselves and just saying, I've sinned. And for those that may not have any of those struggles right now, we still, day by day, need to be mindful. God comes first. Everyone else comes second. We come last. Easier said than done. But through God's grace, we can do it. And through prayer, 
and dedication to this, we can do it. If there's anything we can do to help you, please come as we stand and sing together.